there are things that we can do to see our world differently. And if we see it differently, then maybe it changes how we act and the choices that we make and the things that we do. And especially if we can learn about that, then we can take control and try to intentionally change how we see things to have better control over the choices that we make. In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Emily Balchetis. Dr. Palchetis is a social psychologist and professor of psychology at New York University, whose research focuses on how our visual perception influences motivation and how we can leverage the cognitive biases inherent in the human mind in a way that makes us more effective at achieving long-term goals. She's written 74 scientific publications, given two TED Talks, and is the author of the 2022 book, Clear, Closer, Better. This conversation provides an introduction into some of the key insights from Dr. Balchetis' research, including how our everyday perceptions can be thought of as illusions of the mind, why positive visualization and vision boards can actually be counterproductive when pursuing goals, how to use framing and narrow focus, widening the bracket, and materialization to achieve goals, how Michael Phelps uses foreshadowing failure to succeed and how you can too, the crucial link between systolic blood pressure and motivation, and more. You can learn more about Dr. Balchetis' pioneering research by going to spamlabresearch.com. Okay, Emily, welcome to the show. Um, Thanks. To get started, a question I'm really interested to ask you is, to what extent can we say that our visual perception of the world is an illusion? Well, you can say it all that you want, for sure, and lots of people do. Um, but, you know, I think to to just say it like that is um, is going to get a lot of people riled up for the wrong reason. You know, we don't walk around the world and we think we're having a conversation with our husband, but it turns out it's our, you know, ex-landlord from 10 years ago. And, oh, what an illusion. Can't believe that happened. Or, you know, you think you're walking around the streets of New York, but lo and behold, you're actually in Sydney. Like, no, that doesn't happen. We generally do see the world the way that it is. Um, but there are lots of moments in our life, in our everyday experience, um, some that are just, you know, run of the mill and some that are pretty consequential where there is a discrepancy between what's really there and what we experience seeing. And that's where things become interesting. And that's also where we have additional sources of power that we, if we learn about these opportunities, these moments, we can leverage them to our advantage. So is it fair to say that we see everything is the way we see things is an illusion? Um, I'm not sure, but it's an interesting way to start the conversation for sure. And I just, I'd like to maybe understand how visual perception works. So in some sense, is our brain kind of filling in the gaps? There's this guy, Anil Seth, who we've had um, do a couple of things with this. And he talks about, you know, what we see, what we experience is a combination of signals coming in from the environment and then our brain's best predictions about what caused those signals. So could you, could you maybe elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great starting point and everybody agrees on that, you know. How we see is that there's stuff that's out there. There are cars outside my office window right now. There's a computer screen across the way. And those things don't end up in my brain. It's that the light from the sun or the, the ceiling bounces off that stuff, comes this way, goes through my pupil, ends up on my retina. Those get turned into signals that get sent to my brain, right? So 
But then those are just like signals, like a cell says, boom, fire. Like that was what I'm into. I'm like, oh, this one happens over there. So the brain's got to make sense of all of that, kind of like zeros and ones, a binary input um, um, that that is a representation of that light bouncing off of a thing and coming into our eyes. So in all cases, we have to stitch together the pieces of evidence that our retina and our world provides to our brain. And how do we do that? We do that because we have a lifetime of experiences knowing that when there's brightness, that usually means lightness or the sun or it's daylight. We learn these contingencies of what does that little ping of information mean? And you can quickly call up your past experiences, your past knowledge, your understanding of how the world works to make those guesses really fast. Now, sometimes we're in situations where we don't have that much experience. This is totally new or our system, our brains and our eyes are really overwhelmed. And we, uh, we make those decisions under suboptimal conditions. And that's where you can get um, differences in experience. I think like the most, that was like really philosophical. I get it. Um, but the most concrete example that, you know, might, that might come to mind um, as a recent, uh, a recent experience is like, think back a couple of years, there was that blue, black, white, gold dress that was like all over the internet world. And people were just so up in arms about like, you know, how could you see that as blue and black? It's totally white and gold. Like, what's wrong with you? Are you an idiot? Are you lying? Like, what is happening? Like, families were screaming at each other over Thanksgiving about it. You know, friends unfriended each other on social media because they thought the other one was just being ridiculous or like, you know, making drama for the sake of making drama and they couldn't take it anymore. And so who is right? Like, what is the actual answer? Well, and I don't even remember what, like blue and black. I can't actually remember what the actual answer is, but why was that happening? because our brains were trying to make a guess on what is showing up in this photo that wasn't professionally taken. It was kind of like, you know, sub sub professional quality. And what our brains were trying to do was say like, Hey, with these, like the way the light is here, is it that it's coming in from the side naturally, or is it artificial lighting from the top? And our brain was making that guess of like trying to figure out what's the lighting like in the room when we can't actually see the source of the lighting. But we have a lifetime of experience of, of getting a sense of when natural lighting comes through a window, what does it do to how I see stuff? What does it look like when artificial lighting comes from the top down? How does it change how I see stuff? And whether we can consciously articulate what happens with our words, our brains know, our brains have learned that these lighting conditions do this to my experience and these other lighting conditions do this to my experience. And so those are predictions. Those are those are those are predictions that, um, that the brain is doing and corrections that it's making to the signals that it's getting about that blue, black, or white, gold dress. And it's changing our visual, our conscious visual experience of it. We think we're seeing a dress that's white and gold or blue and black, when really it was sort of shades of gray, honestly. But we're trying to fill in the gaps based on what our brains think that lighting is. And because, and probably precisely because none of us can actually articulate that we know that, that we know what different lighting conditions do. That's why we can't fathom why somebody would see it differently than us. That's uh, very well explained. Thank you for, for elaborating on that. Now, it seems that, you know, these biases are, are almost inevitable. And your book is all about, you know, getting these biases working for you as opposed to against against you, you know. So, can you maybe expand expand on that? And yeah, can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people like learning stuff about about how their brains and their bodies work. And this is an area where we might know some stuff, but there's a lot of things that we probably aren't aware that's happening. So it's fun to learn about it. Um, I think, you know, one, one, one study that we've done in the lab, um, I think people can probably resonate. They may have had this experience. And, and so I'm going to set it up in a way that we might help us relate to it, but it's different than how we tested it. So you can think about you know, one of the loves of your life, maybe the first person that you ever fell in love with when you were a teenager, first person you ever married. And, and probably at the time that you first fell in love with them, you thought they were incredibly beautiful, the most beautiful person that you'd ever seen and love looking at their face. But then they dump you or they go have an affair and, and, and your marriage falls apart and you're angry and you're mad and well, at minimum, you're not with that person anymore. And now when you think about their face, is it as beautiful as you originally thought it was? Probably not. At least that's never happened to me. I never look back on my exes and think like, oh, they have such a beautiful face. I mean, I thought that at the time, but I don't know. I don't know. And <laughs> um, I bet other people can relate with that too, that when there's a change in your social relationship, there's also a change in how you're seeing the other person. Definitely what we're thinking about them, but also how we're thinking about how they look. And what we did, and so I think people can relate with that sort of shift in the visual experience or the visual memories that we have of individuals. But that can happen in real time, too. What we found, what we did in our research lab, this was a project led by Shanna Cole. She is a, she's a professor at Rutgers University. She uh, brought in people, um, some of whom were in highly committed romantic relationships with an opposite sex partner. Others were single. Now, we said, What's going to happen in the lab is that you're going to really get to know somebody. We brought in another person who's here for this, for a study on social relationships. You're going to be asking each other some really personal questions. You're going to get to know this other person really deeply, and you're going to share a lot about yourself, too. It's a pretty intimate experience. But before you go into this meeting and you have these really deep, personal, revealing conversations, we'd like for you to get to know them a little bit more. So here's a bio about who you're about to have a conversation with. And for some of these people who are either were in committed relationships themselves or they were single, they saw a photograph of an opposite sex person who was really attractive. And then their bio about what they're studying in school, what their aspirations are, what their hobbies are, was like really appealing. This person seemed awesome. They looked awesome and they seemed awesome. For other people, it was just a, you know, an average, an average character, right? They took the same kind of classes as you. They had the same sort of boring routine schedule. And they were not unattractive, but just run of the mill. Now, the interesting case is that what happens for people who are in a committed relationship, they're about to do something really intense and divulging and personal and intimate with somebody who's extremely attractive. Now, if I had, yeah, <laughs> uh, if I had heard about that, like my husband doing something like that, I'd be like, hmm, okay, this is a serious temptation opportunity, right? And the people generally realize that themselves. So is that we're in highly committed relationships. He said, like, I'm really in, into my partner. They realize that this was kind of a tricky situation to navigate. Now, everybody, all of the people in this study, regardless of who they're about to meet and what their own relationship status was, we said, before you go into that meeting again, we want you to do one last thing. We're calling this like a, 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 visual, a, a visual test. Here's the person. Again, here's a photo of the person you're about to meet. Here are nine different pictures. They all kind of look like the person you're about to meet. They all bear some similarity to that, to that biopic, that headshot. 
they're a little bit different. They're tweaked in a little bit of different ways because we had morphed that photograph with a much more attractive or a much less attractive person. So all of the subtle changes in these nine other slightly different headshots were making the person more attractive or making the person less attractive. We said, your job is just to match. This is the person you're about to meet. Which of these nine pictures matches that guy or that girl? And if you get it right, we'll give you $100 or we'll put you in a lottery for $100. It was an incentive to get this right. And what we found was that those people who were in committed relationships themselves about to meet this really interesting, attractive other temptation, they chose a picture that was less attractive. To them, the person that they're about to meet is, is not as physically attractive looking to them. We believe that that's a way to manage this like, you know, challenging situation. This is, this is going to be hard for me. And how can I do it? Well, I can't change what they do and what their aspirations are and what they study and what, you know, like anything about, about them at their core, but I can change how I'm seeing them. And so they saw them as less attractive as a way to sort of dampen down the hotness of them, the tempting, temptingness of them, even though from that measure, it meant that they came out with less money, right? They were motivated to get this right because they could win money in this context. And yet they couldn't choose the right picture when everybody else really could. Those people that I was like, well, I'm single. I'm excited to meet this hot, hot guy, hot girl, or they're not that attractive. So it's not that much of a threatening context here. So I don't really need, need to do anything to like to manage that social issue. Does that make sense? That was kind of a long winded explanation, but you know, just kind of one example I think we can relate to. Um, and that we tested in the lab as, as having that kind of an effect. No, it's a great example. And it really sort of illustrates that point of, you know, getting your biases working in, in your favor as opposed to against you. Now, in your book, you provide four strategies, um, narrowing focus, materialization, widening the bracket and framing. All right. Now, what do all of these have in common and why are these important to learn for anybody interested in pursuing goals? Well, when I think about it, you know, the goals that we're trying to work towards, some of them might be easy, some of them might be really challenging, they might be in really different domains, and they might require different skills to, to succeed at them. You know, my goal with the book and with the work that we're doing is to, you know, try to expand people's tool belts. What, what tools do you have at your disposal to try to help you in these different situations? When the goal changes, the difficulty of it changes, what you're working towards is different. Um, but so that's the that's the purpose of this. The goal with these different or what they have in common is that they all harness something that maybe we don't realize is, is a powerful tool that we already have at our disposal, which is our power of sight. There are things that we can do to see our world differently. And if we see it differently, then maybe it changes how we act and the choices that we make and the things that we do. And especially if we can learn about that, then we can take control and try to intentionally change how we see things to have better control over the choices that we make. So um, let me give you an example then of that, of the narrowed focus of attention that you, that you brought up. Um, this came about when I was, uh, I was interviewing some of the world's fastest runners. All these people had won, you know, Olympic medals in the last Olympic games. So the fastest guy out of Trinidad and Tobago, somebody who had just, you know, uh, set a new 400 meter world record, like incredibly fast, uh, runners. And I was just wondering, like, how do they do it? What, what are they doing with their eyes? They must have superpowers of perception that somehow they know exactly where they're headed. They can track themselves relative to their competition. And I don't know, like their eyes are just on another level. 
Um, there was lots of things I wanted to ask them, but I thought I should focus on the thing that was relevant to our research. So that's what I thought. But then when I started um, testing them and asking them questions, I realized I had it all wrong. They told me that what they do to run faster and what they know that they should do is to focus their attention, not expand it. They're not, they're not paying attention to what's in the periphery. They set a target, they find a goal, and they focus on that until they hit it, and then they set the next one, um, and that they do that repeatedly. And when I dug into the stories of strategies that other people use, not when they're running farther than 400 meters, like you know some of the, the most amazing women who uh, who won the Olympic, the marathon in the Olympics for the first time, like in the 80s when they first started letting women compete. Um, and people who, you know, women who won, you know, a, a marathon 10 times over, what strategies do they use? Same thing. They say, you know, they choose the woman in, sh in pink shorts up ahead. They focus on those pink shorts until they pass that person. Then they find the next interesting thing to focus their attention on until they pass it. And they keep setting these sort of micro goals. And it's not just setting a micro goal, but it's literally about narrowing in that sort of spotlight of attention. It's about not, not giving much weight, not trying to focus on what's on the periphery, what's on the outside. And so that was different than what I thought. Um, and I just wondered, like, maybe that's something I can teach other people. Someone needed to teach it to me. They did. Can I teach that to other people? And what does it do? So then I've tested this strategy on thousands of individuals who are trying to run faster or walk more frequently, like move more. And, and, you know, as I'm describing this, I'm sure you can envision what that's like. Imagine a spotlight is, shine, is focused just on some target that you're, that you almost have blinders on and you're not seeing anything that's in the periphery. You can do that. That's not that hard to do, but it's different than what we usually do, which is like, let ourselves be captured by what's moving around over there, over there. We let that happen. But when we don't let that happen, what we find is that those goals of the micro finish lines appear closer. People have a visual experience of proximity. Now, what happens then when it looks closer, it looks 20 to 30% closer when people narrow their focus of attention rather than letting it expand broadly. When they see that finish line is closer, it has a motivational effect. Now people say, well, that's not that hard to run to. I'm pretty sure I can walk there. I've got what it takes to meet this challenge. It increases their motivational expectancies. Then when that happens, when you've just changed your motivation, it affects performance. People can, uh, when we tested them, people walked 23% faster. When they use that strategy, then for the next week, when we weren't even standing there, they took over 80% 80, 80 more steps. They traveled farther, they moved faster, and they did their exercise more efficiently. Also, using that strategy of narrowing their focus of attention especially in longer ones, as you get closer to the end, using that strategy, especially towards the end, when maybe you're more tired, you need the extra jolt of energy that differentiates people um, who are the, who are the ones that win races from people who don't win races. The people who are the fastest runners in our, in our data sets, when we look at experienced 5k runners and those that are the, the slower, relatively poorer performers. So that's an example then of how like, we probably didn't know that. We probably didn't know the extent to which what we're focusing on translates into like pretty big behavioral outcomes, behavioral differences, like how how they're how they're performing and how they're competing and what translates between like winning and losing. But once you know that, it's easy to do it. It's something you can teach yourself to do and that you can practice and build up that skill set. 
I, I've been trying it on my morning run. I would run, run like five miles in the morning and I actually got a personal best recently doing it, like picking a lamppost, getting to that, picking the next lamppost, getting to that. And it actually makes a big difference. So, so there you go. Um, I, I think what's great about these, the four strategies you, you provide in the book, Emily, is that they're universally applicable. You know, you can apply these to any goal and any domain, which is, which is so important for people to learn, I suppose. So for example, for this one of, narrowing focus if you're applying that to maybe a cognitive goal or a long-term goal like i don't know um let's say it was to write a book you would then take the, the long far off goal and narrow your focus to the the sub goal sub goals ahead you know um, but something i find fascinating about your work and i don't know if it's your research but it's definitely something you talk about is the link between positive visualization and like in the case of a vision board and systolic blood pressure and why this is important whenever we're pursuing goals. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that there? Sure. This is really interesting work done by colleagues of mine at New York University by a research team led by Gabrielle Otengen. And the idea, we can just take a step back and like add some other elements to this description. You know, a lot of people use vision boards. The idea of vision boards or dream boards is that you collect images that reflect what your long-term goal is, where you want to be in the future. What are you working towards? You might scrapbook them together, overlay them, put it up in your wall or something like that to inspire you every day. And creating one of those is no small feat. A lot of people struggle with like, well, what is it that I want to do with my life? What, what do I want to do with the time that I have here? And being able to articulate an answer to those questions is really challenging for some people. Um, and so making one of those like it is an important step in figuring out what is the purpose? What's the big goal that I'm working towards? The problem comes in when people stop there, when they stop that process of daydreaming or fantasizing about what success would look like. Um, and stop the process of goal setting right there um, because of what happens with systolic blood pressure. Now, systolic blood pressure is the top number on your blood pressure reading. And behavioral scientists know that that's a physiological indicator of our body's readiness to do something. You know, this has been studied a lot in animals and what they have found, you know, with like horses, racing horses that are in their stalls before this, before the gates open, they're getting all amped up. They know it's going to be about time to race. They're penned in. They actually can't move, but systolic blood pressure goes up in anticipation of those gates opening. They've done this with, with, um, you know, with runners as well, that in anticipation of doing something, systolic blood pressure goes up. And it's not just physical movement because other researchers have studied this too in terms of cognitive tasks. So you're about to sit down and do some hard math problems. You're just gonna sit there, you're gonna move your pencil a little bit, but your brain is gonna have to work hard. And before doing that, right before doing it, systolic blood pressure goes up in anticipation of needing to harness motivation, like get our body into it, right? Like I'm gonna have to focus, I'm gonna have to like, you know, get engaged here and systolic blood pressure goes up. So back to my colleagues at New York University and the dream board idea, when, when people stop the process of goal setting at, at thinking about what success will look like, visualizing what success looks like, systolic blood pressure stays low. It doesn't go up. In fact, it goes down some because it feels like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. When I hit that mark, you know, when I meet that goal, like that's going to feel great. And you almost sort of like vicariously savor goal success. Like you've already put yourself there mentally. And so your body can chill out. It's like, yeah, 
that's gonna be awesome. Look at me, look at me in my head go. And so bodies relax. But when people start thinking about how awesome success is gonna be, what does it look like when I make it? And then start doing the hard work in that same sort of session, that same goal planning session of like, concretely, what do I need to do today, the next couple of weeks, blah, 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 to be able to get there? And what are some obstacles that might stand in my way? And how can I shore those up? Like, what would my plan B by plan C be? They start foreshadowing failure in a, fa- in, in a sense. And those are the people for whom systolic blood pressure goes up. So those are the people that have like taken it to the next level. This is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it. These are the things I might struggle with along the way. Now let's do this thing. And, and, and their bodies are reacting and mobilizing them to, to start doing the work. So positive visualization by itself actually decreases systolic blood pressure, which reduces our readiness for action and our motivation. Whereas if we combine positive visualization with actually like concrete planning, next action steps, here's what I need to do. And also thinking about potential obstacles that might arise as well. Um, that can be a really effective way to actually make this work for you. Now, in your book, you tell the story of um, Michael Phelps and Charlie Munger for foreshadowing failure. I think we don't have a lot of time today, so I want to maybe, um, I think the Michael Phelps example is a really powerful one for understanding how best to foreshadow failure. Can you tell us about how his approach to doing this? Sure. So, you know, when I talk about that idea of foreshadowing failure as a source of motivation, a lot of people are like, what? Like, you know, I, I, so I should sit down with my team and say like, all right, guys, here's our next quarter's goals. And by the way, here's 12 ways we're going to fail. And that's going to be motivating. Like, seriously? But the answer is yes, because it's not just about listing all the like how hard it's going to be or all the ways that things are going to go wrong. But instead, we need to think about it as forming backup plans. And when we think about it as backup plans and it feels safer, right? We've got we've got a cushion there in the likely event that we actually have something challenge us. Because when we're facing a challenge, in those moments, we're most likely short on time to figure out a solution. We don't have as many resources to think creatively about how we're gonna work through this. We just need to be able to pivot quickly to whatever we know is is gonna be a likely solution to this problem. And that's something that Michael Phelps and his coach has, has known forever. So back in 2008 is when we really first started to learn about Michael Phelps on like an international stage. It was at the Beijing Olympics and he was, I mean, he was already, he is and was already an incredible swimmer um, back then. And he was on the brink of doing something that no Olympian has ever done in the history of the Olympic games, which is win eight gold medals in a single, in in a single year's games. At the time of this story, he had already won seven. So it was looking pretty good that he was gonna break this record. And he just had the 200 meter fly ahead of him. He was competing in the 200 meter fly. This is like his jam. This is exactly what, you know, he's, he's meant for. It's four laps of the pool. As he dove in, his goggles started to fill with water. By the time he had just one length left, he just had to go back to home base. His goggles were completely filled with water and he was swimming blind. Now, if that was me, I would totally have panicked, drowned in the pool, you know, it would have been awful. I never would have been in the pool in the first place because uh, I already would have been drowning. But like, that would have been a panic moment for me. But it wasn't for him because he had already planned for this. He and his coach had thought of this possibility of what happens when you start swimming and your goggles don't work anymore. You can't just stop, take them off, let them, you know, drip them out and then and then move along like you'll lose. He needed to instantly pivot to what the backup plan was 
And he did. He started counting his strokes. He knew exactly how many strokes it takes for him to get from one end of the pool to the other. He did that. He won his eighth gold medal and he'd go on to win 15 more medals uh, in his career. So incredible, incredible. And in fact, like people um, talk about like what are some of the coach's strategies and, and, you know, one story goes that his coach would even like rip his glasses, rip his goggles off of his head as he is about to dive, dive in and smash them on the side of the pool for dramatic effect. I'm not sure if that's true, but um, that's part of the, the legend of this, that he practiced swimming without being able to see. And so you could imagine in that kind of a competition, just four lengths of the pool. Think how fast those freestyle swimmers swim. There is not a moment, uh, a window, moment of a window of opportunity for him to like have an emotional reaction or start to think of like, what should I do? He needed to instantly pivot because that's the difference between first place and second or third or fourth or fifth, right? And I think that's the beauty of being able to foreshadow failure, foreshadow obstacle and do that um, solution planning in advance because like amazing things like that are possible when you do. For sure. For sure. I, I read uh, Per Charlie's Almanac like, I don't know, five or six years ago and well, probably a bit longer ago. And then I, this, this project, the weekend university started as live conferences at the university of london so there was a tremendous amount of planning that would go into that and like so many things could go wrong so many variables so i would always do that before the event you know what are what are the worst things that could happen you're like what would this look like if it was a disaster and so many things came up that i was able to solve ahead of time just because of this thing it's so powerful um now how difficult should the goals we set for ourselves be and again we can link this with systolic blood pressure too Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, people have a like a lot of different strategies and approaches for how to how difficult do they set their goals. You can think about January 1st, big day for people in goal setting, right? New Year's resolutions. It's a thing. A lot of people believe in them. A lot of people do them. And usually what people do is go big, go big or go home, right? Like I mean, new year, new me, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. I'm going to become a CEO this year. Or, you know, they like they set these lofty goals because it just feels like a fresh start. Fresh start is something that Katie Milkman, who's a behavioral scientist who studies goals, also talks a lot about that there are moments, psychological moments in our lives that just feel like here's an opportunity to do something totally new. The start of a new school year, you can get a whole new wardrobe or you can cut your hair in a different way. Right. But like two months later, no, you can't like that. You have to wear the same. You know, you just feel like you can't change things then when it does feel possible, you know, at, at this at these other moments in your life. So New Year's resolutions, people set really big goals. And that is part of the reason why, you know, by Valentine's Day, six weeks later, most people have thrown in the towel because they've, they've done themselves a disservice with uh, how challenging they've set the goal and then their expectations for what success along the way is going to look like. And they've just had too many failure experiences then. They expect themselves to be able to lose five pounds a week. Well, that doesn't, that isn't physiologically possible for most people. So when you set yourself up that way um, with goals that are on the verge of impossible, well, then of course you, you throw in the towel sooner um, on, on what the, you know, the bigger goal might be. So then people who learn that about themselves try going the other way. Well, fine, then I'm going to set these small goals so that I can like, keep the motivation up. I'm going to set a micro goal. I'm going to set lots of micro goals, tiny micro goals. I'm going to, for example, make a to-do list and write the word, make a to-do list on my to-do list. And I've made my to-do list and I can cross off, make my to-do list. Ta-da. Does that feel good? 
No, because you still have the whole bloody to-do list, right? And there was probably not a question in your mind that you could make the to-do list. The question is, can I do the to-do list? So when you set goals that you also know are too easy, that's not great because we actually don't get the hedonic impact, the feeling of success by trying to trick ourselves that way. We, we know that one was going to be like in the bag and, and that that's like a, just a minuscule step in the direction of doing the things that I actually want to and need to be doing. And so we like to think about this like Goldilocks, the Goldilocks principle. It can't be too hard. It can't be too easy. It needs to be just right. And coming back to the idea of systolic blood pressure, when we set goals that are at that just right level of difficulty, moderately challenging, beyond the brink of maybe what we know to be possible for ourselves today, but doesn't push us over into the realm of impossible, that's what's most motivating. Systolic blood pressure goes up the highest at that Goldilocks um, level of difficulty rather than in comparison to the very challenging or the very easy where we see systolic blood pressure stays really low. When your body knows like you actually don't need any help to like write your to-do list, I don't need to energize for you here to get that job done, or I'm not putting anything into this. This is impossible. I'm not even, I'm not even going to give you anything to try. When our brain is doing that, our body follows in suit. Uh, when we know this isn't really worth it, it, it can't do it, we give up before we even get started. That's uh, yeah. To me, it seems like it's almost like an art to being able to just pick the right challenge to work on and being very aware of your current capabilities and capacities and just sort of leaning over your age, you know. Um, but makes a lot of sense. Now, in the book as well, you talk about um, removing ambiguity from aspirations, and you you give the example of how you um, really got serious about learning the drums and you, you talk about sending invites out for for a drum solo can you tell us about that there and why that's important yeah so you know i want to i'm a scientist i do the science i read the science i appreciate science as a technique for understanding what's true for how many people is this true does this help does it not help under what conditions does it help so i use science to approach that but i'm also a person i also have goals i struggle with those goals and i need these tactics too so part of the book is talking about Here's what science says. Here's how I experienced it when I tried it in this thing that I care about. Um, and, and so that was fun. I, the goal I set for myself is to learn how to become a rock drummer on one song. I just wanted one song. I do have a musical past, but like not, I'm not coordinated. And I, it wasn't, it, it was, I played saxophone and piano. I didn't play, I didn't play drums. So, so it's like, I wasn't starting at zero, but in some ways I was starting at zero. And I chose drums because at this point, like, I, you know, my research lab was going strong. Uh, you know, I, I do a lot of teaching and, and lecturing. I was married, I have a family, but I just had my first baby. And, uh, and the baby was a month old and people were coming over to visit and like, oh, how's the baby? Oh, the baby's so cute. Like, what's life like? And I used to have really fascinating stories. I feel like anybody who lives in New York and goes out in New York, like you meet crazy people, it's awesome, it's fun. There's so many great things to do, but not when you have a baby. All of that of your life, at least in the first month, like that goes away. And so I just felt like the most boring person when I used to be interesting. So it was like, I don't know, I changed a bunch of diapers. Like, you know, it just felt like the most waste of a life, even though I very much love my first child and my second child, but I was like really struggling with my identity. And so I thought like, that's what I need. I need to set a goal to like reclaim a little bit of myself in this experience of learning how to juggle professional life and now being a parent. 
and I, we have, uh, we had a one bedroom apartment in Manhattan and I decided I want to become a rock drummer with a one month old baby. So stupid goal, honestly, it's like, we're going to get evicted. This baby's never going to sleep. It's going to be awful for everyone, but you know what? Selfishly, I need this. So like, how do you navigate that? How do you, how do you do all of that? And so I try these strategies out of myself. And one of them was like finding ways to be accountable. And one of the ways that, you know, accountability is great and it's super scary. You know, somebody to tell you, nope, you are not getting there. You're not, you're not meeting the mark. Like, that's hard feedback to get sometimes uh, for some people. And it is for me. You know, and one way that we skirt that is by keeping the goal ambiguous. Like, what does success really look like? Or what deadline do I really have? And when we don't clarify that for ourselves or for our accountability partners, then we give ourselves that ambiguity and that wiggle room to never actually have to face the music and find out, can we do this thing? Did we do this thing? Did we hit our mark or not? And you get to just sort of stay at this purgatory level where like, yeah, it's never mission accomplished, but it's also never mission failed. And it's that fear of failure that a lot of people are trying to navigate. I don't, I don't want to call myself for this pursuit of failure. So how can I skirt ever having to put that label on me? And that's a whole other conversation about like our relationship with that concept of failure and goal failure, you know? And so like the book has lots of suggestions about accountability, but this one in particular you're talking about was just like, you know, I got to give myself a concrete deadline. And I don't want that deadline to move because I like need an ending to this book. Like, did I learn how to play drums? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and it's got to fall in line with the publisher's date for when my story has to come out. So I made the invitations to a concert that I was throwing, featuring myself, sent it out to, to people I knew, but strangers also, um, some of whom showed up and, you know, made my own merch t-shirts and whatnot and, uh, and, and just made it a thing. Like there's no backing out now. People are coming. I already made the t-shirts. I got to do this. And, uh, and that helped, that helped me to have a, an end date on it. It's a great example. And it's sort of almost like that idea of like burning the boats or whatever, or sort of like, you've just got no, you've got no opportunity to back out once you've done that, you know? Um, it's a beautifully written book, you know, like that thread of learning the drums is weaving in, woven in throughout along with the science and everything else. So it, it flows really well. It's really interesting to see your evolution as a drummer and all the challenges you have on that. Now I want to ask about um, materialization and there's a woman you'd talk, she's in, I can't remember what, what the project was called, but Georgia Lupi and her process for um, materializing her process and the importance also of documenting the evolution of a journey and why that, why that matters. Yeah, I loved learning about this story. So Georgia Lupi and Stephanie uh, Posevec they were strangers to each other. They're probably strangers to, to most of us that might be listening to this, but the, these are incredible women. They're in the graphic design space, data science space, arts, like, uh, like amazing sort of, you know, Renaissance women. They met each other at a conference, like you know, for a, eclectic people uh, in a professional space. And they, even though they didn't know each other before, they, in that first meeting, that moment said, Let's commit to each other for every day for a year. Let's track something about our lives. One, what, one was born in New York, living in London. One was born in London, living in New York. And they, they wanted to learn about each other. And so rather they, they, they weren't going to make phone calls and stuff, but they were a form of like old school pen pals. Each week they would set a, a, a theme like, I wonder what kind of uh, animals live in your city. 
And, or I wonder what kind of compliments you hear in a week directed at you or people around you. I mean, so just like all kinds of random things. And so every moment of their day for the entire week, they have to be paying attention to like, what kinds of live animals do I see in London or in New York? And like, when am I giving a compliment? When am I receiving a compliment? What compliments am I overhearing on my commute? And, they ha- and they're keeping notes about that. And then they're sharing that information with each other and how they're sharing it is where like the beauty, I mean, it's amazing that they did this and they did this every day for 52 weeks for a whole year. And then how they shared it was that they made postcards for each other. And the postcards were these beautiful works of art that, you know, one of them that I remember kind of looked like a camera placed down at the level of the ground and a field of dandelions. These dandelions were different heights. They had different, you know, volumes of plumage on the top. But every aspect of that visual meant something. The height the number, um, the height of the flower, the number of flowers, the spread of the of the seeds, all was an indicator to something, something about the types of compliments they received or the grossness of the animals that they saw. Um, and, and there was a legend so that um, they could decipher the visual code that somebody, that the other person had just drawn for them on the postcard. And so there wasn't a lot of like text. There wasn't like, a, oh yeah, I had six meetings today. I got in a fight with my boss. Like they didn't use those kinds of words on the postcard. That was just visualizing the data that they had collected about their lived experience for the week. They dropped it in the mail and then it would show up at the other person's house a couple days later. And so when I was asking them, so, and then the other cool thing is that like it, you should, they turned it into a book called Dear Data. There's also a bunch of techniques. If you're a teacher and you're listening to this or anybody who's inspired by this, there's lots of examples for how to, use this in educational practices also. And the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which is you know, one of the world's premier institutions for modern and contemporary art, acquired their collection. They, they bought the collection of all these postcards because they are so beautiful um, and so fascinating with how they're like re- representing their life. And so when I got to talk with them, I was just like, how did you do that? You're a stranger to each other. This is like a lot of work. You're constantly having to think about it. And they're like, they're like, well, pause. Sometimes, you know, like we did have fun and we were drunk and we didn't remember. So there are moments of blackouts, <laughs> not like they didn't blackout, but like data blackouts. Um, so, you know, like 99% of their life for a year was, was spent on this. Um, and then one of them said like, the what was motivating to me was was the moment that I received the postcard. You know, I'd come home at the end of my day, had a front door that had one of those old fashioned mail slots and the mailman would throw the mail in and inevitably it would be that postcard on the top of the pile of the mail that would land on my doormat. And that doormat was like a visual frame. It was framing up this postcard, this beautiful little intricate piece of artwork that I know somebody had spent so much time to make for me that was in this doormat frame. And that was the source of motivation. So yes, it's about accountability, but it was literally seeing this, this thing that I I know represented a lot of hard work and someone else's commitment to me, but I needed to see it. And when I saw it, that's when I, you know, got the motivation to keep going on. And so it was mutually reinforcing that way. But that idea, you know, metaphoric idea of a visual frame is something we can think about in all aspects of our lives. Like, what do we let our eyes focus on and what falls outside of our visual frame? Where do we direct our attention? What do we put at eye level as we stock our fridge or stock our pantry or think about the artwork that we put on the walls or, you know, how do we line up our bookshelves? 
Um, do we clean our, you know, do we clean our room or clean our apartment at the end of the night before we go to bed or do we do it in the morning when we wake up? And what does that mean to like wake up to a dirty scene or a clean scene or our exercise shoes at the foot of our bed versus our slippers at the foot of our bed? What do we put in our visual frame? And when we start thinking intentionally about that, conscientiously about that, we can start to imagine what the connections would be. When I see my exercise shoes, what do I start thinking about? When I see my slippers, what kind of vibe does that send? And we can start being more intentional about what we put in our frame and what we put outside of our frame. And maybe we have more control over the choices that we make as a result. And you you literally placed the drums somewhere in the, in the house that you were going to have to always go past. So you would just find yourself, you know, I'll just stop here for a quick practice, you know, and... Yeah, it was a constant reminder. I put them like by the door, you know, by the door on the way out. So I was like, oh yeah, okay. I got five minutes as I wait for my kids to take forever to get their shoes on or whatever, you know. It reminded me of the strategy Jerry Seinfeld used to use as well. Whenever he wanted to start writing habitually, he would have a big massive calendar on his wall. And for every day that he wrote, he would cross off the, the day with an X. So every day he was seeing his calendar. It was a reminder of his, his goal, you know. So just having things in our environment that um, bring our our visual attention to our goal can be very beneficial. Um, something else, a couple of things um, I was really curious to learn about from your work, Emily, was one of the most, one of the times most people give up on a goal, whether it's running a marathon or a long-term project is the middle phase because you're, you know, you've not got that initial motivation anymore and you're not near the finish line. That's when most of us give up. And then you talk about a, a really effective strategy whenever you're at that point for um, for motivating you motivating you then. Can you tell us about that? And then I've got one more question. Yeah. So, you know, in all different kinds of goals, we there might be the wall. When you're running a marathon, right, there's the there's the wall. Your body can only store enough calories to make it through to what is the eighteen mile marker. And then and then you get you experience the wall. Like you gotta do something. But so many people finish marathons, right? So even when you hit the wall in a marathon, millions of people do go on and cross it. So like how is that possible? When we feel that we're like stuck in the middle there, or, or you know, we're up against a challenging part where we still have six miles to go for a marathon, but like we're not going back to the start that was 18 miles ago, what can we do? Now, it's there isn't a simple answer here. And that's what is the behavioral science and what's really fascinating. There's an important differentiation. You can think about commitment. How committed are you to this goal? How much expertise do you have in this in this space? Is this something that you really personally are intrinsically interested in? Um, and do you have confidence that like this is a goal that you can accomplish or not? Is it something that you're not as committed to? You're more relatively more novice in this area. And being able to self-diagnose that is important because it leads to different prescriptions for what you should do uh, to find motivation. When you're really committed, you have a lot of experience. Looking forward to what's left to go is more motivating than looking backwards. Looking back isn't as exciting because it didn't really occur to you that like you couldn't get here. I know I can get here. And what's important is that I close that gap. So when I look to what's left to go, um, you know, there's more energy that it's, it's more exciting to be able to close that gap for those people that are really committed and have expertise. But for those people who are new to a space, um, looking back on the past is motivating because it's like a concept almost like called sunk costs. 
look at how much I've invested already. Like I got to keep going. I need this to have been worth it to pay off for me. So looking back on the past and what's already been accomplished is more motivating for those people who maybe doubted or weren't certain of their own commitment to the goal in the first place. Yeah, that's, that's such an important idea. And I think it's quite novel in this space as well. Like I haven't heard it much elsewhere. Um, now you talk as well about this idea of widening the bracket and what are the ben- what what is widening the bracket and what are the benefits of zooming out you know in terms of pattern recognition and identifying triggers and things like this Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the idea of that wide bracket widening out is that sometimes you do need to be able to pay attention to what's going on in the periphery. We can get so stuck at seeing the trees that we can't see the forest. I mean, I'm sure you know that metaphor resonates with people. It's a phrase, obviously, that I didn't create, but we can probably all think of when that's the case, that we keep trying to pursue a course of action that isn't working. We double down, we try it again, or you know, we throw, throw more money, more time, more manpower, more lady power at it, and it's just not working. And those are the moments where we need to take a step back and look for a different path through the forest. But you can't do it when you're just so like dogmatically focused on this right now, right here. You can't, you can't see that there's another way around. And for most things, there are. There are multiple ways to accomplish the same ends, but through different means. And we need to give ourselves the space to do that. There's lots of reasons why it doesn't work. When you start thinking about What's your emotional reaction to when that's happening to you? When you invested in something, it's not working, you double down, you you spend more, you spend more, you spend more, like, are we feeling good? No, we're usually really frustrated or we're scared that we're not gonna, that we're not gonna succeed, or we start to feel anxious that like, is this a good use of our resources? They're usually not positive feelings when we're having that that moment. But positive feelings are when um, are useful for being able to broaden out our like literal visual scope of attention, but our cognitive attention as well. Positive feelings, you know, Barbara Fredrickson is a famous social psychologist who had the broaden and build theory about emotions and cognition. So it can be in those moments where we find ourselves getting like, you know, stuck in this, in this rabbit hole, um, where our our emotions are doing us a disservice to our ability to actually troubleshoot a, a real solution to the problem. When solutions are out there, there's usually more than one way to, to get what we want. We just have to be able to find it. Definitely, definitely. And you talk as well about, you know, being able to disengage whenever um, the goal isn't the thing that you actually should be pursuing. And that's a really, really important life skill. You know, people get so like almost dogmatic about the the goals they're pursuing. Um, So I know you've got to get going, Emily, so I won't keep you much longer. Um, Where can people find you online? Where can people get the book and learn more about, about your work and research? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you can, you know, check out the book anywhere where books are sold. Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. And you can follow me on LinkedIn. I try to post content um, that, that, you know, other other recordings, interviews that I've done there and also on Psychology Today. I write for Psychology Today and I have a couple TED Talks out. So just Google my name and you'll find the content listed in a bunch of different places. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your master library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, 
online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.